welcome to this edition of the ASHA Podcast. I'm Fred Wyan, Director of Communications with the American Sexual Health Association, ASHA. Cervical cancer screening used to be all so simple. Women were told, just go for your annual pap. But now we have new tests to screen for cervical cancer, plus updated guidelines that, for most women, mean that routine screening is done every few years rather than annually. And it's all confusing, not only to women, but their health care providers, too. So to sort all this out, we're talking today with Dr. Warner Hutt. Dr. Hutt, thanks for taking time to join us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Dr. Hutt is Division Director and Professor in the Division of Gynecologic Oncology at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. So you're clearly the right one to steer us here. Uh, the, the cervical cancer screening landscape has just changed so dramatically in the last few years, and there are a number of options available to screen for cervical cancer. Every five years, using a PAP HPV co-test in women 30 and older. Every three years, using a PAP alone. And a new option, HPV primary screening, using an HPV test followed by a PAP for certain results. Each option obviously extends screening intervals well beyond the annual PAP that has been such a routine part of healthcare for most women. So what should women really know about this, especially regarding the effectiveness in detecting cancers and precancers with all these options? Well, I know as you mentioned, Fred, we, you know, for many, many years use a annual pap smear as the standard for cervical cancer screening in this country. And what we've learned essentially is a couple things. One is that, A, we don't need to screen that often. And the reason we're saying that is that we're now understanding that there are some inherent risks and significant risks of overscreening women, particularly annually, and that there may be a very marginal increased detection of lesions that might turn into cancer or be at risk for becoming cancer um, when done annually. And so the, the really the focus now is really on trying to minimize what we call the harms of overscreening women with uh, pap smears. And that's one of the major reasons why we've gone to every three years with just pastors alone up to the age of 30. In regards to women older than the age of 30, and as you mentioned, we use something called co-testing, which is a combination of an uh, HPV test and a pap smear. What we learned there is that with, when you have both tests being negative, that you can actually extend screening to every for five years, and some of the evidence will point to that that there's a lot of reassurance knowing that that woman's risk of developing cervical cancer or even a, uh, a severe precancerous lesion is remarkably small during that five-year window. But again, going back to my original point, Fred, the reason you've seen these changes is mainly because we're actually very concerned about the risks of overscreening. So would you expand on that uh, just a bit? What are some of the risks associated with screening too often? Well, some of the risks um, are, you know, one in three women in this country will have an abnormal pap smear in their lifetime, so it's a really substantial number. So those risks might include having to undergo a procedure and a biopsy that may be completely unnecessary. The other risk is uh, what we do know is that some women will get treated um, for a lesion, and particularly for a lesion that might actually go away on its own if closely followed, and uh, that puts that woman at risk for subsequent uh, adverse outcomes related to becoming pregnant, specifically, you know, going into preterm labor, rupturing their membranes, or breaking their water a little bit early. So there's some sort of downstream consequences 
of undergoing an excisional procedure uh, for an abnormal pap smear. And so those are some of the things that we're concerned about. But really, the bulk of it is, do really women need to come in and be evaluated for a pap smear and have a biopsy that they may or may not really need? Okay. Let's talk for a minute about HPV primary screening. That's where an HPV test is used, uh, followed by a PAP, depending on the result of that HPV test. And this is the most recent change to the field of cervical cancer screening that people have really been asking us about. So first, why use an HPV test as primary screening? So, so why use an HPV test is a really good question. And so there is, it's a sort of multiple parts to that answer. Well, first off, what we know is that uh, persistent HPV infection or persistent high-risk HPV infection, what we mean by high-risk, that there are about 14 types that are associated with the development of can cervical cancer worldwide, including the U.S., that if you have a persistent infection with one of those types, that uh, you basically are at greater risk of developing cervical cancer. And so we, and we know that the majority of cervical cancers are associated with HPV. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that we've been using HPV testing for a long time now, since basically the early 2000s. And what we have discovered is a couple things, is that one, is that women who are HPV negative or high-risk HPV negative, like I mentioned earlier with co-testing, there's a significant amount of reassurance that, that woman is going to be at a very, very low risk for getting cervical cancer over an extended period of time. Conversely, if it's positive, that definitely alerts us to the possibility that that patient may be at risk and needs a different evaluation. And so when we look at screening tests, and you know, some of these words may be, be beyond the scope of this podcast, but we use words like sensitivity and specificity and positive predictive value and negative predictive value. But what we get concerned about cancer screening tests is something called a sensitivity. And that sensitivity is really a reflection of the false negative rate of a test. And what we know about pap smears is that pap smears, in fact, have a very high false negative rate. It's as high as 50%, or it's about as good as a coin toss. However, the false negative rate for an HIV test is around 3 to 4%. So it's much, much better at detecting disease and, and um, detecting disease. And as a consequence to that, we feel that over time that the HIV test will be a much better screening test, particularly as we vaccinate more and more women as well as boys and girls uh, with the HPV vaccine. So what is the role of the PAP with HPV primary testing? The PAP's not just, it's just not, it's not going to just go away, right? No, I, and there's, a, this, there's this misconception, it's a global misconception, that now that we are sort of embracing and promulgating this concept of primary HPV testing or screening, as I mentioned earlier, that PAP testing will go away. And in fact, that couldn't be further from the truth. So what we're actually recommending, at least for now, is that maybe that PAP testing might function better if you used it as the second test instead of the first test. So in other words, what I mean by that, instead of using a PAP on everybody, that instead in women who are HIV positive, that maybe some of those women actually would get reflexed to a PAP smear. And so you're enriching a certain population and you're more likely to pick up disease and so in a way, you could argue that we're actually allowing the PAP test to function better under those circumstances. But no, we're not recommending that passengers go away. We're just recommending they, that those two tests be used differently in terms of their order. 
Okay, so that brings me to this. There have been some recent news articles about research indicating HPV primary screening might miss more cancers and precancers than the than the co-testing using the HPV test and PAP together. Can you clarify for us just what does that mean? Does does HPV primary testing leave women at risk? No, I mean, and then there there was an article that recently came out that may suggest that co-testing may be a little bit better than primary HPV testing. Um, I still think we still really don't know the answer to that question adequately, at least in this country. But the bottom line is this. Irrespective of whether you look at studies that were conducted in Europe or studies that were conducted in the United States, the bottom line is that when you look at those two tests, pap smear and HPV, particularly when they're used in combination, what really drives the result by far and by far and wide is the HPV result. So when a woman is HPV negative, that is what's really meaningful to most clinicians and to most women. What's not so meaningful is really whether or not the PAP is negative or, or is that as normal or abnormal. And so to that point, what I'm trying to say is that the vast majority of women who get screened are going to screen normal. They're not going to screen abnormal. You know, the people who are going to be abnormal is about 10 to 15 percent of the screen population. But I think all of us would agree that we'd like to be able to tell a woman who gets screened if they're normal that they're genuinely normal and they are at very low risk for getting cancer. That is what the HIV test provides above and beyond the PAP test. And I think for the audience, I'm not saying that co-testing or a combination of the two tests are bad. It's actually quite good. But what I really want to get away is that the HIV test is much, much better than the PAP smear. Let's talk for a second about providers. Um, and uh, my question is, are providers really up to date on all this new guidance and the array of testing options? I mean, it can be confusing, right, even for professionals. So what, what are some of the key messages that you like to deliver when you're talking with other healthcare providers? What is it, the, the, the few talking points that you really think they need to know about all this? So I, I will tell you firsthand, being on the sort of the front lines of writing guidelines and guidance documents for providers when, when it comes to cervical cancer screening, that the number one complaint I get from providers, and that might be physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, nurses, that it's changing too much and it's too confusing. And I wouldn't disagree with them. But a couple of talking points I think that are really important for this audience to understand is that one, Yes, the pap smear made a huge difference in reducing cervical cancer and mortality in this country, but in 2015, I think that we're learning that we're missing a fair amount of clinically significant disease on the pap smear, particularly women that have a normal pap smear. The second thing is that we know now definitively and unequivocally that the HIV test is better than the pap test in detecting disease. So going forward, what I would really like for providers to understand is whether it's the HIV test by itself or whether it's in combination with uh, pap smears, screening really should be anchored with the HIV test going forward. That is what's really most meaningful. And going back to my earlier point, what I'd like to be able to tell women and tell my own patients when they get screened and they screen normal is that that's a real normal, not a false negative. And I think that's what HIV testing can provide. And so I think you're going to see a clear shift, scientific and clinical shift, towards HIV testing over PAP testing. And I think that's really the major take-home point. And for my last question, and this is something that you talked about earlier when you addressed 
the potential harms of overscreening or screening too frequently. But some patients um, have expressed frustration with the extended intervals. I know that like when a lot of them will email or call us with questions about it, there's there seems to be a, an underlying feeling that the reason the annual PAP was taken away was due to concerns of cost rather than what's best for women. So there's you know, this impression that bean counters were making these, these decisions and not not providers. So and you talked about why those those intervals have been extended uh, again because of the harms of overscreening. Is there anything you might any advice you might offer for advocacy organizations like like ASHA when we're talking with women? Just really things to stress so that we can we, we can make that point more clearly. No, it's a, Fred, this is, Fred, that's a great question. And that's probably, of all the questions you've asked, maybe perhaps the most important one. So, so to the audience and to the advocacy groups like ASHA, you know, the decisions that were made were not made because we're trying to be cheap or cost-cutting or save money. Legitimately, these decisions were largely driven, as I mentioned earlier, to minimize the harms of overscreening. Because if you talk to any woman who's undergone what's known as a colposcopic examination in a biopsy of the cervix, that's not a pleasant procedure, particularly when you tell them that they may not have needed it at all. Um, and so it has, it has very little, almost next to nothing to do with money. However, with that being said, I think that as a screening profession, particularly for cancer prevention, we could do a much better job at sort of engaging our patients and trying to educate them and get them sort of invested and bought in as partners for this. Do I think that, for instance, that getting a PAP, every PAP every year is completely overkill and necessary? Perhaps, but, you know, I think if certain patients want to be screened more frequently and they're counseled about what those risks are, perhaps that's not such a terrible thing. But, you know, we try to set forth guidelines that apply to the general population, and there are, going to be, there are going to be circumstances where those guidelines don't apply. But one thing I, can, I think that we can do a better job doing is engaging the provider and the patient, making them understand screening, how often we screen, what the risk of having an abnormal test is, and what the consequences are, and letting them make the choices on their own. But again, to your question, those recommendations are not based on financial gain uh, or trying to save money. It's really based on trying to balance the benefits and harms of screening. Yeah, and I think it's important to to really emphasize that there are harms associated with with testing and with screening. Um, and I, I don't. I think maybe that's sometimes counterintuitive. We don't really think that way. Thanks for taking time to be with us today, Dr. Warner Hall. We really, really appreciate this. We covered a lot of ground, and I, I'm sure this is an ever changing field. You know, and so as things do continue to change, I hope you'll come back and chat with us again sometime. Absolutely, it's a pleasure having me, and thank you very much, Fred. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, and thanks to everyone who downloads and listens to this podcast. We'll have more to come, so check back often. You can find us online at ashasexualhealth.org, and of course, follow us on Twitter at InfoAsha, and be our friend on Facebook. You can also sign up on the website to receive Asha's update emails, and we'll let you know what's happening in the world of sexual health, including new resources as we roll them out. So until next time, this is Fred Wine for Asha. So long, everybody.